welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, episode five of the Romeo Carey podcast. Episode five brings you an outtake from the uh, in-progress documentary entitled Where the Action Was, which is a 1960s, really centered on Los Angeles music scene, featuring the greatest of all times and kind of our lead in this and someone who we're recognizing in a big way is Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, Dynamite uh, cast, just thrilled to be bringing that uh, forward real soon on a, on a streaming uh, network. From that, we have an amazing interview from uh, really in my mind, uh, just a, a humble, generous, really intellectual to the highest uh, degree, but not uh, over-academiaized. He puts it really plain and clear, and the stories and the depth of uh, uh, in which this author reaches is just amazing. It becomes a real blueprint for a lot of what uh, we touch on in the documentary. Uh, this uh, interview is with none other than William McKean, American author and educator, something that I have in common. We're both professors. Um, of course, I work in Santa Monica, but uh, Professor McKean works in uh, Boston at the Department of Journalism at Boston University. Uh, what we're going to center on in this uh, story and this podcast is his book. He's written a multitude of books, but this book in particular is Everybody Had a Notion, Music and Mayhem in 60s Los Angeles. And uh, on board with this interview, we had the, the three partners of uh, the documentary, Robert Bird, we had Robbie Curtis, and myself, Romeo Carey. So, uh, without further ado, let's get started with the uh, William McKean uh, podcast centered around uh, 60s music, Los Angeles, and our documentary entitled Where the Action Was. Take it away. They never would have done that at Columbia Records or never would have done it at RCA. But they did it there, and that became Rocket 88, uh, maybe the first rock and roll record. So California uh, was a place that collected these little independent record labels. Uh, I remember there's a story from Jan and Dean about when they were teenagers, and one of the first records they made was on this label that was so small it was run out of a camper truck. And I thought, that's the frontier. That's the, the, the craziness. But really, one of the things that started building uh, by the 1950s to sort of set the framework for rock and roll was a, the formerly independent, now becoming larger label called Capital, because that's where Frank Sinatra landed in 1953 when he began recording there. And that was the beginning of the shift to Los Angeles as the primary area for recording and popular music. Uh, it moved across the country from New York to Los Angeles. And um, 
certain artists came along like Sam Cooke and Richie Valens. A guy named Bob Keane started an independent label called Delphi that specialized in surf music. And before you know it, Southern California was the, uh, the recording center of America. Can you uh, speak a little bit about the uh, music scene in South Central LA? The uh, 5-4 ballroom and uh, the Chitlin circuit? Are you aware of anything like that? I know a little bit about the, the Chitlin circuit. It was a, a group of nightclubs where a lot of African-American artists played. It was really the only venue open to them. And what they were playing in the 1950s was in everything but name, it was rock and roll. Um, it just wasn't open to uh, the mass audience. I mean, the Chitlin Circuit extended all the way across the country and probably the high temple of the Chitlin Circuit was the Apollo Theater in Harlem. But uh, there was a really active rhythm and blues scene uh, in Los Angeles. What were the clubs that the black artists played at? I don't think I know the names of the clubs. Okay. Uh, Not without it up. Let's talk about uh, Sam Cooke. Okay. Sam Cooke came from, uh, originally came from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and spent most of his young adulthood in, um, in Chicago. But he joined uh, sort of the Beatles of uh, gospel music then, the Soul Stirrers, and he became the matinee, the heart, the matinee idol, the heart throb. Uh, he became the lead singer that uh, people would show up just to watch and to swoon over. In fact, uh, Aretha Franklin, as a little girl, remembered going to see Sam Cooke uh, when uh, the Soul Stirrers would come to her father's church. Her father was a very prominent minister, and so. By the end of the 50s, uh, Sam Cooke wanted to cross over to uh, more secular success. And he cut a record initially under a fake name, uh, but you couldn't disguise his voice. And he borrowed so many of the motifs and the arrangements and everything from his gospel music to take it into secular music that yeah, pretty soon it was, it was clear that uh, the guy that was singing all these pop songs uh, was actually the, the gospel singer. Uh, Sam Cooke, and he owed some of his success to uh, Lou Adler, uh, who was a young record producer then, and Herb Alpert, who later became a recording artist in his own right with uh, Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass. They were both working for the independent label that began to record these secular songs with uh, with Sam Cooke. In fact, you can hear Herb Alpert and Lou Adler uh, punching over uh, Sam Cooke's shoulder as he records what a wonderful world this would be. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. That's those guys in the background. So he was one of the, uh, the artists that was beginning to uh, develop a little bit more of this blended rhythm and blues, uh, rockabilly, soon to be rock and roll scenes in, in Los Angeles. And, uh, what was the uh, the mystery behind Sam Cooke's demise? He just had this, he had, uh, Sam Cooke had this image as just being this beautiful man, extremely talented. He was married to a beautiful woman. Uh, there was so much going on behind the scenes, though. It was such a troubled marriage. And not long before, 
Sam Cooke's death, uh, his son died in a drowning at, uh, at his home in the swimming pool. And he never forgave his wife for that. He thought she hadn't been vigilant, hadn't been watching him. She'd been high, uh, whatever. Uh, he blamed her for that. And uh, the last night he was alive, he went out with um, uh, some friends and he found a young woman and uh, took her to a, a really kind of raunchy hotel. Uh, and uh, he went into the bathroom to uh, freshen up or whatever. And she ran off with his clothes, including his wallet. And he chased her. He thought that she was uh, had gone into the manager's office. And so he uh, he began pounding on the door and it's like two or three in the morning. And the manager comes to the door and feels threatened by him. And she shoots him. His last words were, you shot me, lady. And he died there uh, wearing only, I think, uh, one shoe and a jacket. He was uh, crumpled in the manager's office. And it was just kind of a shock that um, this guy that just seemed to the outside world to have everything going right uh, had such a, a, a troubled soul. Where did the shooting take place? What city? It was in Los Angeles. It was in uh, the Hacienda Motel. Okay. Maybe you could tell us uh, again where he got shot and you know, put it all together. Okay. Let me double check. i uh, got my book here. Oh, it's... That's great. Any reference you need to, any reference you need to make, not a problem because this is all going to be cut up. Yeah, I figured. Uh, so he was he was shot in the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, um, December tenth, nineteen sixty four. I should say that again. He was shot in the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, December tenth, nineteen sixty four. Got it. Now, uh, what about Ike and Tina Turner? Can you talk about those, about that group for a little bit? Well, you know, Ike Turner should really be uh, given consideration as one of the potential fathers of rock and roll because it was Ike Turner and his band, the Kings of Rhythm, that went to Sun Records in, in Memphis that day, showed up with a broken amplifier and uh, said, we can't do the recording session. The amplifier is broken. There had been an accident on the way to the studio. And Sam Phillips, the owner of Sun, said, well, let's plug it in, hear what it sounds like. Now, even though the band was Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm, uh, the lead singer was the saxophone player, Jackie Brinston. Uh, so the record came out credited to Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats, which was a band that didn't exist. But uh, they labored on the Chitlin circuit for years. And finally, uh, I think it was in St. Louis that uh, Ike Turner came across Anime Bullock, who he thought would be a fantastic addition to his group. He turned her into a singer, rechristened her Tina Turner. I think theirs was only a common law marriage. And he kept her at home kind of ensconced as the domestic goddess to take care of the children. Um, Ike Turner was not the most enlightened of human beings. But uh, when she'd go on stage and was behind a microphone, she became this, this raw uh, sexual animal and certainly possessed one of the greatest voices in rock and roll history. 
uh, they played the Chitlin circuit. Uh, they had, you know, modest crossover success, but it wasn't until they were uh, kind of selected by Phil Spector to make uh, a record in 1966 that they really had their big chance at the, at the mass audience. Now, when Spector was going to make this record, he had the song River Deep, Mountain High from a couple of his regular collaborators. Uh, he wanted just Tina Turner. He was going to use his uh, regular backing musicians, the studio musicians known as the Wrecking Crew. He didn't need anyone else in the band. He just needed Tina Turner. But Ike Turner drove a really hard bargain, and he said, that's fine, but the record will come out credited to Ike, the Ike and Tina Turner review. So it's it, it came out under that name, even though it's basically just Tina Turner with the Wrecking Crew. Let's talk about uh, uh, their work with uh, Phil Spector, and I, I assume they recorded at uh, Gold Star Studios. Right. Uh, I think Spectre used Gold Star almost exclusively. Um, it's a little hole-in-the-wall studio. Uh, it, it's so, it looks like a convenience store from the outside when you look at the pictures of it. Uh, and I think that's why Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys began recording there, but also at uh, Western Recorders. He didn't know he was a uh, Brian was a, a a young guy and he didn't know until Jan of Jan and Dean told him that you didn't have to use the record company studios because uh, Brian thought well we're on Capitol Records we have to use Capitol Studios and so he was dissuaded of that notion and he uh, he worshipped Phil Spector he worshipped his his records and so uh, he wanted to go where Spector made those records and use the very same musicians which is is what he did he. Uh, uh, you can look at uh, the great Beach Boys production, uh, Don't Worry Baby, as kind of a love letter to Phil Spector because that was Brian Wilson sort of saying, here is everything you do as as best I can do it. Uh, I can Tina Turner. Do you know of any of the clubs they played at in Los Angeles? Again, uh, I would have to look that up. Okay. Uh, got my my music books around in the other room, but uh, I'd yeah. have to look it up. I have a really good, there might be a good guy you would want to talk to named Preston Louderback, who wrote a book called uh, The Chitlin Circuit. Okay. And he's in Memphis. Okay. Uh, I would say he's, that's what the book I would go get. He's the authority on that, if you ask me. Great. Let's start with the uh, surf scene and how it started and, and how it evolved and the, how the Beach Boys became the preeminent band in that genre? Well, I think surf music was, at the beginning, uh, instrumental. Uh, the king of the surf guitar was Dick Dale, who was a surfer. Oddly enough, he's from a, a suburb of Boston, uh, but he had moved to Southern California when he was a senior in high school. And uh, as the new kid, uh, senior year, he was sort of a loner. So he, he discovered the beach and he discovered the, the sport of surfing. And he decided that what he wanted to do with his music was to convey the wet feel of the water through music. So he had this thundering guitar, uh, he played left-handed. Uh, he would blow up amplifiers, he played so loud. 
and uh, had this tremendous reverb. And that was his attempt to recreate the feel of surfing. So surfing music, generally in the early days, you think of as, as instrumental, really guitar-driven, really twangy, sometimes sort of spooky and mysterious. Uh, the song Pipeline by the Chantays. Uh, there's the goofy strain of, of uh, Wipeout by the Safaris and things like that. What the Beach Boys did, I think the Beach Boys really were all about singing from the start. Uh, Brian Wilson, the leader, was infatuated with uh, four freshmen, the four freshmen being a vocal group uh, that he'd grown up loving. He also liked rock and roll of his era, like Chuck Berry and so on. But it was kind of a, a, an ordinary singing group until they came upon the idea of uh, singing about surfing, which nobody else was really doing. And, and different people take credit for that idea. It probably came from Dennis Wilson of the Wilson brothers and her cousin Mike. He was the one that wasn't part of the singing because his voice just wasn't quite as good as Brian and Carl Wilson's or Mike Love's. So the story is he's the one that said, why don't you write a song about surfing? And so they did. They had gone into the studio, a little mom and pop studio run by Hike and Height and Dorinda Morgan. Uh, and the Wilsons had gone into the studio with their father and they were going to uh, do some demos, mostly uh, folkish kind of demos, because this is the era around the time of the Kingston Trio. And then um, the next session, they decided to try out this new surf music. And that brought a lot of things together. It had the twangy guitar of instrumental surf music, but it had these kind of lush vocal harmonies, like the old vocal groups of the 50s and the, the four, uh, four freshmen and so on. And also a little bit of jangly uh, Chuck Berry guitar. So it was a little bit of everything put together. I think the uh, the real surf music aficionados who really like the, the uh, heavily reverbed instrumental guitar surf music always kind of look down a little bit on the Beach Boys. Um, none of them surfed except for Dennis. Dennis gave uh, Brian the names of, uh, you know, the various places he'd go surfing and they called them all out in the, in the uh, song Surfing USA, which was actually basically a Chuck Berry tune with surf lyrics. So he called out all the, the names of the beaches where he went. And he told his brother, well, here's some surfing slang. So Dennis Wilson, although he wasn't credited as a co-writer on any of the songs, contributed a lot because he was kind of uh, allowing the Beach Boys to pass as surfers when they, they weren't surfers at all, except for Dennis. And uh, what changed? Uh... For the band, when the, when the, uh, the the Beatles hit, it's to take steam out of the band. You know, the the Beatles sent uh, the creative team of the Beach Boys into a panic. Uh, Brian Wilson was the composer and often his own lyricist, but cousin Mike Love was, you know, frequently wrote lyrics with him. And they got together the day after the Beatles had been on the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, uh, Brian was in a panic. They were right in the middle of finishing an album. 
an album with a really horrible title, by the way. It's called Shut Down Volume 2. Uh, they did not make a volume one, but it was just an anthology album that the company had put out. So then, uh, anyway, they're finishing this album, and Brian says to Mike, we need to start over. We need to scrap everything. You know, the, the rules are different now. And Mike Love said, in essence, are you crazy? People buy this. This is what they want. So we're going to keep doing this. And I think for the next three or four years, if not for the next three or four decades, that was the source of this um, uh, creative division in the group. Brian was the mastermind. He was the composer, arranger, producer, and all of that. But, but Mike was not an insignificant force. And so Brian kept wanting to do something that was different or experimental or go into another direction. And Mike said, but the kids like these songs about cars and girls and school and summertime. Let's just give them what they want. And uh, that was a, you know, one of the great struggles, I think, within a group uh, in, in that era in the 1960s. What influence did uh, Murray Wilson have on the band? Well, Murray was their father, and um, he was the father of Brian, Carl, and Dennis, and of course the uncle of, of Mike Love. He was a powerful force uh, in, in that he, he ruled by violence. He was himself the uh, product of child abuse. Uh, his father had beaten him in the head with a two by four, lost part of his ear. Um, so he grew up ruling with that kind of iron hand. The Wilson boys uh, all shared a room growing up and they would goof around or do what boys do, uh, saying their father would come rushing into the room, you know, ready to pound somebody. And the only way they could control him was to sing for him because he was a, he loved music and it would make him melt. And so uh, they, they learned quickly that music was a great defense mechanism. When they had that first recording session and then the second recording session, when they were teenagers, their father Murray went along with them. And pretty soon he began to realize that, you know, maybe these boys had a lot of talent. Now, Murray was, he ran a machine shop, but he was also a songwriter, and he had had a couple of songs published, one of which I think had actually been recorded by Lawrence Welk. But he was kind of an ordinary uh, songwriter. I guess you'd have to say he'd have to improve to be mediocre. And then his son, you know, has found the lost chord of God. His son was just tremendously gifted. And so there was a great deal of resentment there, and Murray felt he was going to lose control of his family. So he made himself the manager and uh, he, he ruled the Beach Boys for the first few years. He dealt uh, with the record companies, did all the negotiations. One of the executives at Capitol Records said there used to be a, he had a buzzer installed so that uh, his secretary could let him know when Murray Wilson was in the building and he would, he, the record executive would hide under his desk to avoid any confrontation with Murray because he was so unpleasant. And uh, it got to the point where after the boys had a couple of years of success, um, Brian fired him. He fired his father, which as you can imagine is a, a difficult thing to do no matter what your relationship with your parent. And Murray ended up retreating to his bed for months, uh, suffered great 
bouts of depression. And of course, this is a cycle that was kind of repeated with his son when, when Brian Wilson later in, in his life began to have those moments, moments, months where he would withdraw and, uh, and not really leave his bedroom. So uh, Murray Wilson uh, helped the band get started. He invested everything in his business into this band and it paid off. Um, and then the boys had to let him go because they were, you know, he was holding them back. He was fining them for swearing off stage. You know, he was just a, a, a real dictator. And he, he ended up kind of screwing them over in a way uh, the end of the 60s, Murray Wilson thought, well, nobody cares about the Beach Boys anymore. So he sold all the publishing rights to the Beach Boys songs for, geez, something well under market value. Eventually, decades later, through a lawsuit, uh, Brian was able to prove he'd been taken advantage of because of his fragile mental state. He got the rights back. But, uh, you know, it was a very contentious relationship. Uh, with with their father. And when he died in uh, 1972, uh, neither Dennis Wilson nor Brian Wilson could bring themselves to go to their father's funeral. Um, it was a it was a very difficult family life. Well, really, the opposite of of the the Beach Boys were really the opposite of the image that they conveyed because they conveyed this. Uh, happiness, big man on campus, I've got all these girlfriends and I've been all around this great big world and I've seen all kinds of girls and I'm this and I'm that. And yet the guy that was writing most of the songs was pathologically shy and withdrawn and bone, uh, you know, uh, suffered long bouts of depression. What was the relationship between Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys? Well, you know, Jan and Dean were there first. Uh, Jan and Dean made their first record, actually, it was under the name Jan and Arnie. Uh, think about 1958 or so. And Jan's father worked for Howard Hughes, so he grew up pretty wealthy. And so uh, there was a four car garage at the home. And so uh, Mr. Barry allowed his son Jan to uh, to use part of that as a recording studio. And Jan, Barry, Dean Torrance, and uh, their friend Arnie went to see a, a stripper one night and they were uh, impressed with her. And so they went back and wrote a song about her called Jenny Lee uh, that had this percussive effect that was supposed to uh, mimic the, the, the movement that, that she made on stage and that the old nasty old men in the audience at the strip club were uh, were emulating the boom ba boom ba boom kind of sound. So they made this record. Uh, Dean went off into the military. This is right as they're finishing high school. And Dean hears the record on the radio. The song, which is called Jenny Lee by Jan and Arnie, went to number one. Dean gets out of the military, comes back home, and hooks up again with Jan. And they begin making records. Arnie's no longer in the picture. And so they had some success with recording before the Beach Boys came along. And they met at a concert. Uh, Jan and Dean were performing with uh, the Beach Boys. And Jan was beginning to think, maybe this surf music is the next direction we ought to go to. Maybe, this, maybe we ought to give this a try. So he's kind of picking Brian's brain. 
at this point, Brian had made a, they, the Beach Boys had made a few records, um, but he unveiled for Jan his new song that night, which was Surfing USA, which was the Chuck Berry song, Sweet Little Sixteen, with all the added surfing lyrics provided that, uh, that Dennis Wilson had suggested. So, uh, Jan says, hey, can I have that song? And Brian says, oh, no, uh, but I got something else I'm working on. You want to finish it for me? And he sits at the piano and starts banging out, two girls for every boy. And that became, what's finished by Jan Berry, became Surf City. Uh, and that was when Jan and Dean began to switch uh, into doing surfing songs. That became the first number one song that Brian Wilson wrote. It wasn't a Beach Boys song. It was a song for Jan and Dean. And so um, Brian's father, still their manager then, Murray Wilson, was infuriated. He wanted to ban Jan and Dean. He never wanted to see them around. But meeting Jan Barry was kind of a big deal for Brian Wilson because he opened his eyes to the fact that, you know, just because you're on Capitol Records doesn't mean you have to record in Capitol Studios. Why don't you try this studio? This is where Phil Spector records. Or why don't you try this studio? And Brian was also frustrated by the somewhat limited musical capabilities of the people in his band. I mean, his brother Dennis was in the band only because their mother insisted. And so he was delegated to be the drummer. And Dennis Wilson said, I'm a clubber. You know, I never thought he was that great a drummer. Carl Wilson is a pretty competent guitarist. But nonetheless, uh, Brian was having trouble making records with these guys he thought had somewhat limited musical ability. And Jan said, well, don't you know that most of the records are actually played by the same studio musicians? You have Carol Kay on bass, you have Tommy Tedesco on guitar, Hal Blaine on drums, uh, Joe Osborne on bass, Larry Nechtel on bass, Leon Russell, Glenn Campbell. Those are the members of the Wrecking Crew. So meeting Jan Berry was a really important thing in Brian Wilson's life because it allowed him to expand uh, the possibilities of what he could do in a recording studio. And number one was getting out of Capitol Studios and going into one of these smaller independent studios like Gold Star or like Western Recorders that were better for rock and roll. Capitol was great for Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin was not great for rock and roll. Were, were there any radio stations in LA that promoted surf music? I don't know that there was any radio station that sort of pushed surf music above other forms of music. I think the great thing about radio in that era was that uh, it was crazy. It was just all over the map. Um, there would be a, a record by Frank Sinatra and then James Brown and then the Supremes and then the Beach Boys. I mean, there was no real segregation of, of music on the radio in that era because I don't think people, had, they, it, music was coming so fast and furious that nobody could, uh, could categorize it or pigeonhole it. So I think the radio stations in that era were, were great. Radio in and of itself played this huge role. I think it's a great subversive force in American culture because you could always keep 
in, in the days of segregation, in the days of Jim Crow laws, you could always keep black and white separate, separate living, separate schools. Everything was separate. And that was the law of the land, separate but equal. But you could not regulate the air. And music traveled through the air. So radio introduced black America to white America. White America met black America. And that great uh, synthesis that became rock and roll came out of that. Uh, so, so in that era, I, would, I think it's pretty safe to say that the radio was like anarchy. Sorry, Professor, I don't know why I did that just now, that noise. It was on, I, uh, I shut down everything. I don't know why, but uh, that's why I paused. I think we can. Yeah, we can fix it. Yeah. Uh, Let me see. I think I turned off all my updates, so I don't know why that happened. That's a small thing. Yeah, I'm turning my phone off. I'm done. That wasn't my phone. No, that was coming off the computer. Oh. Yeah, it came off of me, but I don't. I think I've got everything off. There's nothing. Yeah, we're good now. Okay. It, it could I'm have been. Sorry. It could have been our equipment too. It may not have been you. It's hard okay. to know. We're uh, we're all clear now, though. If you need me to repeat anything, just let me know. Yeah. Um. Why don't you uh, tell us again about radio and how it integrated the races? Of. How radio was the great integrator. For much of the 20th century, the United States was an apartheid country and the races were kept separate for housing, for schools. There were bathrooms that were segregated and, and it was fairly easy to maintain these kinds of rules, these laws, the Jim Crow laws, because they could the society could regulate things like that. But radio signals travel through the air and you could not regulate the air and the wonderful thing about radio is that particularly at night uh, when tr signals travel much further you can pick up all kinds of things uh that, that you wouldn't be able to hear otherwise uh chuck berry talked about growing up in st louis and listening to the grand Ole opry from wsm in nashville and hearing these songs, these hillbilly songs uh, from the old weird America. Um, Bob Dylan talked about when he was Bobby Zimmerman as a kid in northern Minnesota, he'd pick up WLAC from Nashville and hear the raw country blues played on that station. And that was a music you weren't likely to encounter in Hibbing, Minnesota. Chuck Berry lived in a segregated city. He, he never would have heard country music, but for the radio. So since the radio uh, didn't obey the law because it went through the air, uh, it introduced black Americans to white Americans. And I think that was the beginning of a very important thing. Obviously it, it led to rock and roll, the blending of hillbilly music, as it was known officially in the industry at the time, with race records, race music. Again, that was the official industry designation. Eventually they changed the names for, to country and Western and rhythm and blues. But it was bringing these two forms of music together that made something better the result. And that was rock and roll. 
And in the same way, you could say that about a society. Here are the things that were kept separate, but now put together, something better results. And so radio was a tremendous influence on not just music, but on the culture. Uh, I think it made people understand people that they didn't encounter in their, their everyday lives and, and enjoy their music and, and become to, come to appreciate it. So I, I think radio is the great unsung hero in American history uh, because it played that subversive role of uh, no matter what the law said, we were going to have this common experience. And so uh, as late as the 1960s, I really felt that there was a time when radio was uh, so free, uh, there, were, there were no boundaries. You would hear people on the radio back to back that you could never imagine hearing together again, again, James Brown, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, the Beatles, in a row on the same station. So pop, rock, R&B, soul, as it came to be known, all, the, all these kinds of music were all circulating at the same time uh, and in the same place on your, your major uh, radio stations. What, uh, to the Beach the, the Boys get meet Beatles when they came to LA on, I think they were in LA twice in the early 60s. Did uh, the Beach Boys get, get to meet him? You know, there's not a lot written about that. I think it was just kind of a, a very uh, routine sort of meet and greet. I think that uh, the, the important things began to happen about uh, 1966 or so when the Beach Boys were touring Great Britain and Brian's stage replacement, Brian, uh, Bruce Johnston, took a copy, a pre-release copy of Pet Sounds and uh, played it for John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And apparently they heard it twice, two times through in silence. They were moved by it. And uh, the, the neat thing is it was Rubber Soul by the Beatles that came out in December 65 that inspired Brian Wilson to make, he said, I'm gonna make the greatest album ever made. So he makes Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds so inspires the Beatles that they go off and make Sgt. Pepper's Lovely Hearts Club Band. And so there was this great back and forth uh, tradition of, well, it's more like competition, I guess, a rivalry, a, a back and forth rivalry competition between not just the Beach Boys and the Beatles, but uh, fairly soon we have another American entree, the Birds. Uh, we have the Rolling Stones who up their game uh, once they begin doing their own songwriting. And uh, as Roger McGuinn of the Birds said, we were all trying to outweird each other. We're all, you know, in this this competition. And I recall that Paul McCartney said the same thing about that era. But he said, "We do this, and the Beach Boys would do that, and the Birds would do this, and then." but we're all trying to please him. And him was Bob Dylan. So Dylan was kind of uh, the arbiter of all that was cool at that time, I think. Uh, he's not obviously part of the Los Angeles music scene, but uh, it was a great influence on it because uh, the birds 
were kind of electrified Bob Dylan before Bob Dylan was playing electric music. Let's talk about the birds now and uh, how they started. Well, the birds uh, had uh, kind of an interesting career. The creative trio that, that really got the group going was uh, Jim McGuinn, David Crosby, and Gene Clark. And both uh, Gene Clark and David Crosby had been part of these uh, one of these showbiz, almost something you'd see at Disneyland kind of uh, folk groups of the early uh, early 60s. Gene Clark was in um, the new Christie Minstrels, and uh, David Crosby was in Les Baxter's Balladeers. Jim McGuinn had come from Chicago. Uh, he was offered a job opening for a folk group in the uh, early 60s called the Limelighters. Uh, he couldn't take the job right away because he said, I gotta, I gotta graduate high school first. So he was a very highly regarded musician and a, as a very young man. But he ended up uh, playing with the Limelighters on stage. Uh, he later played with the Chad Mitchell Trio, another folkish group. And then he was hired by uh, Bobby Darren. And Bobby Darren was this hard to classify singer. He's sort of a pop singer who also would do rock songs. He had started as a rock artist and um, wanted to do a folk song set in the middle of his act. So he hired McGuinn and he toured with him for a while. Uh, and then he had to go off and make a movie, Bobby Darren. So he sent McGuinn to New York and said, go, uh, go hang out at the Brill Building and write songs. And so this is about 1963 or so, late 63. Uh, and McGuinn begins writing surf songs because that's what's selling. But he also goes down to the village and listens to the artists he hears there at the basket houses where they're passing around baskets. You know, you get only what the customers put in the baskets. And uh, gets to know Dylan. And uh, when the Beatles came along, McGuinn, who had this folk background, decided, what would it be like if I took these Beatles songs, like I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, or uh, I Should Have Known Better, some of those early Beatles songs, what would it be like if I played them as if they were folk songs? And he got no reaction at all. Nobody in New York liked it. But he went out to Los Angeles, and he was in the, uh, the outer area of the Troubadour, uh, playing the songs this way, and people are just walking by him to get to the main room. Then a guy walks up and sits down next to him and says, I like what you're doing. Can I join you? And that was Gene Clark, who had left the New Christie Minstrels because he was also kind of excited about what was happening in music, and he thought the New Christie Minstrels are just kind of showbiz. So the duo becomes, uh, becomes Jim and Gene, and then David Crosby walks in and he says, can I add a harmony? And Crosby and McGuinn had already met and uh, McGuinn was pretty sure by this point that Crosby was a gaping asshole and he wanted nothing to do with him. But Crosby had a friend who uh, had the key to a recording studio. So they decided, okay, well, we'll let Crosby join us as long as we get in the recording studio. So go, they go into the studio, World Pacific, and they began recording, and fairly soon um, they see the film Hard Day's Night. It changes their lives. They decide, okay, enough of this folk crap. We're going to play rock and roll because, you know, rock and roll stars get girls. So they decide to form a band. Um, they talk 
a, a, a real virtuoso mandolin player in a uh, kind of a bluegrass band called the Hillman. They talk him into being a bass player, and this is Chris Hillman. He became he came into the group reluctantly. He he really was kind of ashamed of being in a rock band, but he joins. And they find this other guy named Mike Dick, uh, unfortunately. He changed it to Michael Clark, but they saw him and they thought, he looks like a drummer. So they decided to make him the drummer, even though he'd never played before. Um, he looked like Brian Jones for the Rolling Stones. So thanks to a connection uh, with this manager friend of David Crosby's who had given him the key to the studio, thanks to a connection, um, to a recording industry uh, executive back in New York, they got uh, a demo of Bob Dylan's song, Mr. Tambourine Man. And they worked up an electric version of it that in, instead of the five verses or whatever it is in the song, they cut down to one verse. And they work up a two minute, 30 second, single electrified version with this chiming uh, 12 string Rickenbacker played by McGuinn. And uh, they put out that record in, in 1965. And that was a real key moment, I think, for uh, rock in Los Angeles, because uh, certainly the, the whole apparatus of rock and roll recording existed in Los Angeles. And I think it had really been be, become, thanks to Phil Spector and Brian Wilson, it had become this great recording center. But now, Rock was going in a different direction. Uh, and the birds never sang about surfing or girls, California or otherwise. Uh, they sang about all kinds of different things. And they kind of upped, uh, upped the game when it came to lyrics and, and lyrical context, uh, con lyrics and lyrical content. Um, but trying to think of what it was I wanted to say. At the time, they were called America's Answer to the Beatles, because this was the first major rock group that was coming out after Beatlemania. When the Beatles hit, it's like everything had to be English uh, for the next year. And the only exceptions were maybe Motown, uh, James Brown, and believe it or not, the Beach Boys continued to have hits uh, even in the onslaught of Beatlemania. But the birds were the first new thing uh, that came along after after Beatlemania. And being America's answer to the Beatles was an enormous amount of pressure. When they made that, that first record, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, they were signed to a major label. It's a sign that the major labels are beginning to notice rock and roll. So they're signed to a major label. And when they go in to record the song, only one member of the birds is allowed to play on the song. And that was McGuinn because he played the signature 12 string. And uh, the other members of the group had only been hired as singers. So that record, Mr. Tambourine Man, which became a huge hit, number one song, was actually performed by uh, Leon Russell and Hal Blaine and Larry Nechtel and, uh, and McGuinn but it was primarily the wrecking crew musicians, the studio musicians at the time. By the time the next record came along, the birds had earned the right to play on their own records. But um, that was a real turning point 
because what they created was this synthesis of rock and roll with a more serious lyrical or folkish sensibility and that's uh, it was a term nobody really liked but they called it folk rock professor let's take a five minute break real quick okay. and, and i'll be right back okay Good? Yeah. Yeah. Okie dokie. Oh, we're done? Okay, good. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about, um, do you have any uh, stories about the birds in, in the studio and the uh, beetles showing up to visit them? I remember that the, uh, I do have a good story about the birds in the studio, but uh, not so much about the, the visit. I remember that uh, all, all I can recall was that uh, it made them very nervous that the, the beetles were there, they, they felt inadequate or whatever, but I don't think I used any of that in my, uh, in my book. 
the the fun story. Do you want to hear the Mr. Tambourine Man story? Sure. The, the fun story about uh, the birds recording has to do with their producer. Um, Terry Melcher was the youngest record producer on the payroll at Columbia. And Columbia had uh, avoided rock and roll, very carefully avoided rock and roll. The, the head of uh, A&R at Columbia was a guy named Mitch Miller, who was strictly Squaresville. And he wanted people like Jerry Vale and Percy Faith and the Ray Conniff singers and stuff like that. He had no interest at all in rock and roll. So rock and roll is developing on these uh, um, independent labels. The major labels rarely dip their toes in, except for RCA Victor with Elvis and then Sam Cooke, kind of the black Elvis. Uh, Columbia had a pretty good folk roster. It had Pete Seeger and then Bob Dylan. But it hadn't gone into rock and roll. Then they got Terry Melcher, who had gone through their producer training program and was the youngest producer on the staff. I think he was 20 years old when he started. And one of the first things he did was to start making surf records and hot rod records uh, with a musical partner named Bruce Johnston, who later became one of the Beach Boys, under the name Bruce and Terry and under the name The Rip Chords. But he was the guy that was assigned to record the birds. And so he puts together this dream team of studio musicians from the Wrecking Crew, uh, Hal Blaine, uh, Leon Russell, uh, I think Bill Pittman was on guitars, and one member of the birds, Roger McGuinn, Jim McGuinn, when he started out. And he played the electric 12 string. So. Terry Melcher records this and it, it, it just sounds kind of flat. And I think all the musicians had left the studio. And so he was trying to figure out what am I going to do with this, this record? And he decided he needed to use the echo chamber. Well, he wasn't allowed. And he went to the engineer and he said, I need in the echo chamber. And the guy said something along the lines of, well, you need a memo for that. Well, no, just use the echo chamber. Well, no, you know, you don't understand. Union rules, we need a memo. We need someone to take responsibility for that. And then Terry Melcher played the mom card. He said to the engineer, do you know who my mother is? And the engineer says, you know, crap, who your mother is? Well, my mother's Doris Day, and she owns a lot of stock in Columbia. She made Columbia a lot of money, and you don't want to make her mad. You don't want to make me mad. So the engineer thinks, well, I'm going to get into some trouble here, possibly. Let me go. Let me go check on this. So he says, just wait a minute, and he leaves the studio. And Terry Melcher moves some furniture in front of the door so the guy can't get back in. And then he finds a hammer, a screwdriver, or something, and he opens up the echo chamber, and he runs uh, Mr. Tambourine Man through it, and that's what gave the record its real vitality and its uh, the. the the thing that still makes it sound great, lo these many years later. And uh, the engineers pounding on the door and they're just pissed as hell at Terry Melcher, but that's how you made a great rock and roll record. And Terry Melcher went on to make uh, uh, not just some of the best recordings of the birds, because he also recorded uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. Later on, he did uh, Ballad of Easy Rider, but he also recorded um, Paul Revere and the Raiders. 
Professor, could you move back just, just a tad? Back? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, back just a tad. There we go. All right. Great. So tell us about, uh, you have any stories about Paul Revere and the Raiders? You know, I don't really have a lot of stories about that, although I was kind of interested in the fact that uh, Terry Melcher was the producer of Paul Revere and the Raiders, and he became very close friends with um, Mark Lindsay, the lead singer of Paul Revere and the Raiders. And uh, they were for a while roommates at the house on Cielo Drive uh, that Melcher later shared with uh, his girlfriend, Candace Bergen. And that was later the, the site of the Sharon Tate murders. Um, close call. It was, uh, it was kind of a nice tribute in Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that uh, the Sharon Tate character is played by Margot Robbie, um, seems to be infatuated with Paul Revere and the Raiders. And I thought that was kind of a nice wink to people in the audience who might know of the uh, might know of the connection. Um, I don't really know a lot about the recording of, of those albums, though. Uh, I just know that Terry Melcher was the, the go-to rock and roll producer, and he had The Birds, and he had Paul Revere and the Raiders, and that was a pretty good roster. Can you uh, speak about uh, Bruce Johnston and Terry's early surf band? You know, they, they were uh, Bruce Johnston. It came out of the same group, uh, I think even the same high school as Jan and Dean. And uh, he had also grown up in a fairly wealthy family, not quite like Jan Barry's family, which had the, you know, father working for Howard Hughes. But he had grown up in a, you know, fairly prosperous household and was kind of a prodigy. And then he started uh, his recording career when he was very young and uh, teamed with Terry Melcher uh, as Bruce and Terry and also as the Rip Chords. And yet again, as the Bruce Johnston surfing band. So he was making all these records for Columbia uh, when he was 20, 21 years old. And he was called initially, I think in 1964, when Brian Wilson decided he could no longer tour with the Beach Boys. He just couldn't stand the strain of touring. Uh, And so I think it was Mike Love called uh, Bruce Johnston and said, do you know anyone? And it was Bruce Johnson who suggested one of the wrecking crew, Glenn Campbell. And Glenn Campbell filled in for many gigs, uh, but he was actually making so much more money as a a studio musician, he didn't want a a permanent deal with uh, the Beach Boys. So he continued to play on on Beach Boys records, but they needed another replacement. And finally, uh, I mean, they needed a replacement now. And so Bruce Johnson said, well, I can't think of anyone, I'll do it. And the instrument he'd have to play was the bass guitar, which was not his number one instrument. He was a keyboard player, a guitar player. Nonetheless, he learned all the songs in one afternoon or enough to do a show and began filling in with the Beach Boys. And I think that was 1965. And uh, that was a temporary job and uh, he's still doing it. So uh, it lasted a long time. He did take a break in the 70s, but uh, Bruce Johnson became a, you know, a songwriter and a creative force and certainly one of the more recognizable voices in the Beach Boys. The first time you hear his voice on a Beach Boys record is in California Girls. 
but for I think three years after that because of Bruce Johnston's contract with Columbia they couldn't put him on the album covers they couldn't use his name so it took a while for him to be recognized as a member but he'd been there from pretty close to the beginning one moment professor one moment sure Romeo is this going to be recording right here let me see this yeah it's recording it's going to the cloud no is this going to show up on a recording no that's just that's just an indicator telling you okay just checking yeah okay um do you have any uh stories about the club scene in LA any of the nightclubs I just know that probably the birds owed a lot of their success to an old nightclub called Ciro's that had been kind of reimagined in that era as a rock club in the 40s and 50s I think it had been primarily the nightclub of movie stars like I think that was Humphrey Bogart's favorite hangout but it was Ciro's became kind of the place to go because the birds were the house band and there was a group of people that came there to dance and they were kind of freaky in the parlance of the times and that created a scene and so that's one of the things that helped propel the birds into the consciousness of LA recording and of course there's the the role of the troubadour in more of the acoustic music certainly with the formation of the birds but later on with Joni Mitchell and even Jackson Brown and Elton John as a matter of fact and for the whiskey a go-go I think for a period of about a year the doors were the house band at the whiskey a go-go so all of these clubs I think contributed to giving helping to give these artists an audience even before they started making records what about Johnny Rivers and he any stories about Johnny Rivers well that's interesting I was just I'm reading a book right now by Jim Webb Jimmy Webb and Johnny Rivers was a protege of Lou Adler who had done Lou Adler's hands were everywhere he'd been important in Sam Cooke he did been important in some of the early surf music uh, he was the, one of the forces behind Jan and Dean's records and eventually the Mamas and the Papas, artists like that. Um, Johnny Rivers was another protege of, uh, of, of well, what Johnny Rivers did was he set up a residency at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And I think it was uh, Lou Adler had the idea of recording uh, Johnny Rivers in concert. And what, what Johnny Rivers did was often uh, to take songs that had been done in one style and do them in a completely different sort of folk rock style and it was the he was unfortunately there right at the time when it became important to uh, your credibility as a rock and roll artist to do only your own songs not to do covers and he he was great at doing covers uh, he was great at doing songs that had been tailored for him, like Secret Agent Man. 
Uh, it wasn't that he was a bad songwriter, he just wasn't prolific. And in that era, as the 60s went on, it became more important for the credibility of artists as the singer-songwriter kind of uh, assumes prominence. It became more important that you only be singing the songs that you wrote. In fact, one of the reasons that Graham Nash left the Hollies, a British group, was because they were going to do a whole album of songs by Bob Dylan. And everyone likes Bob Dylan, but Graham Nash said, this is exactly the wrong thing for us to do it. We should, for us to be doing, we should be writing our own songs. So that was one of the reasons that, that he left that particular group. Uh, so Johnny Rivers came out of that scene and um, began to build an empire of his own. He formed a record label called Soul City uh, he discovered uh, the fifth dimension, or at least gave the fifth dimension some success. Uh, but as an artist, I think was beginning to be passed over uh, by the end of the 60s. He was the perfect artist for the middle of the 60s, doing Chuck Berry songs and Motown songs and all of that in a different style. But, uh, uh, you know, he was he was sort of cast aside, unfortunately. I don't, I don't worry about him too much. He seems to me that he... Uh, he invested wisely in the music business. How about uh, Tony Lopez? We just lost him. Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of surprised to learn uh, that he didn't really achieve any success until about 1962 or 1963, uh, because it seems to me he was always around. So I was I was a little surprised by that. I don't uh, I, I know that. He's kind of like Johnny Rivers in a sense that his first big success was this live album recorded in a club. And the story was that Frank Sinatra, who of course hated rock and roll, he called it vile and disgusting, uh, that, that Frank Sinatra heard Trini Lopez at this club called PJ's and, and was knocked out and signed him almost immediately to his record label, Reprise. It's kind of funny that Frank Sinatra hated rock and roll so much, and yet his record label became one of the leading record labels in building uh, Los Angeles rock in the late 60s and the, and the 70s. I don't know if I would have called Trini Lopez a, a, a rock artist. He was, to me, kind of more folk. Uh, he covered songs that had been successful by Peter, Paul, and Mary, but he made them more successful. I think because what he brought in was this... Uh, energy of latin music and uh i'm not saying the music of peter paul and mary is comatose but uh it isn't really high up there on the energy scale it's pretty and often you know very good but trini lopez could uh could really make you want to go grab a hammer and uh, i'm not sure peter paul and mary were ever that inspirational how about uh some of the other uh Latino bands like uh, Cannibal and the Headhunters and the Premiers. You know, I don't really know a lot about those bands other than what I have in my Nuggets collection, which is the collection of garage rock and things like that. So I don't think I'm really well-versed enough to, to speak about it. Uh, I do know, of course, one of the tragic figures that came out of that era on Delphi, an independent label, was... Uh, Richie Valens, 
who uh, was gone by the time he was 17 years old in the plane crash with Buddy Holly and, and the Big Bopper. Um, but that's that's probably about all I know about that. Okay. Let's talk about uh, Bobby Fuller, how he started and, and talk about his demise. Um, Bobby Fuller uh, came from El Paso, Texas, and uh, was pretty big in El Paso, but he wanted to go to uh, to Los Angeles to make it big. And once again, he hooked up with the same guy at Delphi Records, uh, Bob Keen, and he made uh, a record with a really unusual title. It's called KRLA, King of Wheels. And then he made a second album and then was found dead. And um, the, the death of Bobby Fuller, and Bobby Fuller is most known for I Fought the Law. But when you start listening to his albums, he did a lot of other really good songs. Uh, it was a pretty good rock star of the 80s to the present named Marshall Crenshaw, who's like a leader of the Bobby Fuller Disciples, and he, he records uh, other Bobby Fuller songs. One's called Let Her Dance. I mean, they're just terrific songs. But uh, Bobby Fuller was found um, in his car, dead, uh, soaked in gasoline in front of his apartment. And it, the car had arrived, hadn't been there 20 minutes before, and this is in the middle of the day. Somehow, this was ruled or considered to be a suicide you know how you what do you do first do you soak yourself in gasoline and then fracture your skull or you know what already there's no way in hell uh this was a suicide and i think it's still uh people are not satisfied that they ever got the the true story about bobby fuller's death but there is um there's always been this unsavory element uh, to the music business um uh, there are all kinds of stories about this label or that executive uh, being part of the mob or whatever. And I think that's the supposition that um, Bobby Fuller had pissed off uh, one of those kinds of characters in the periphery of the music industry. And it's a shame, obviously. Uh, but when you listen to it's because when you listen to his records from that time, they really had a lot of vitality to them. I mean, they're still being played today, which which shows you something. People still respond uh, to the music. What was the relationship of Charles Manson to the Beach Boys? Um, Dennis Wilson was a big-hearted soul. He... Um, he always wanted to make people happy and whether that was through music or some other way he would do it anyway he was driving uh, home one day and he saw two girls hitchhiking i guess i should point out this juncture that he was a sex addict so he picks up these two girls and he invites them back to his home uh for milk and cookies which by the way he served he actually he was serious about the milk and cookies. He drank only uh, uh, raw milk. So he invites the girls back. And of course, they have sex, too. Uh, and he tells them, why don't you guys stick around? I got to go to a recording session. Why don't you stick around, make yourself at home? So he went off to uh, his brother Brian's house, and they were recording a song for their 1968 album called Friends. 
and it was a song uh, at the time it was called Even Steven. It later became came out under the title Busy Doing Nothing. And it was a song that's kind of significant because it shows how removed from the world Brian Wilson had become. I mean, I think his bandmates were a little concerned about his mental state. The song has one whole verse about sharpening a pencil and has another verse about um, here's how to get to my house. You take this turn and that turn and then you go around and then here and he's given directions to his house. So it's kind of a, I don't know, a therapist might say maybe it's a cry for help or something like that. Whatever the case, the session for this song at Brian's house goes on and on and on. And Dennis isn't really that important to the mix of the song, but he's sticking around it to be moral support for his brother. So he ends up leaving and I think he got home about three in the morning to his house, which was a really kind of an estate. It had belonged to Will Rogers and it was a, like a log cabin mansion he pulls in the driveway and he sees all these lights on and he sees a bus and he wonders what the hell's going on but he parks his car and he's walking up to the back door and the short little dude uh gets out and starts walking toward him and dennis's first words were are you gonna hurt me and the guy says no no man and he sinks to the ground and starts kissing dennis's feet well that's charles manson uh the girls that dennis had picked up earlier that day were two members of Charles Manson's family of runaways and waifs and so on. And they were living at uh, Spawn Ranch at the time. After Dennis had left for the recording session, the girls called Charlie and he brought the busload of the family down. And so they just moved into Dennis Wilson's house. Well, as a sex addict, this was a great setup for Dennis because uh, there was Charles and Dennis, and I think those were the only males. There might have been one other uh, sniffing around at the time. But mostly they were all young women and they were mostly naked. And in fact, there was a, an interview with Dennis in one of the English fan magazines at the time and the headline was, I live with 17 girls. And in that interview, he talks about this fantastic new musician he's met called The Wizard. And of course that was Charles Manson. And what, what Manson was after was he was a career criminal. He had just gotten out of prison uh, the year before, and he had wanted to make it in the music business. And so he thought Dennis Wilson might be a guy to help him because he's a, a rock star. And it didn't quite work out that way. But when you look back and, and listen to some of the recordings that Charles Manson made, many of them at Brian Wilson's house, um, it, 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 it's not outside the realm of possibility that Charles Manson would have gotten a recording contract. I mean, some of those songs are, are not bad. Um, they may have a, a weird cast to them, but they, you know, there's a certain charm and he doesn't sound bad either. In fact, during that period when Manson and the 17 girls were living with, uh, with Dennis, one day, um, Neil Young came over. And Neil Young was just in the process of leaving his great first band, Buffalo, first big band. He was leaving Buffalo Springfield. And so he showed up and he wanted to try out some of his new songs on Dennis. Um, Neil had just signed with Warner Reprise Records, so he's putting together his first solo album. 
And he was close to Dennis because the Buffalo Springfield had opened for the Beach Boys on a couple of tours. And Dennis was a friendly guy that he was. He'd hang out with the opening act. So anyway, Neil shows up, plays some songs. Dennis gives his opinion. Yeah, he's great, Neil. And then this little guy who'd been jumping around the room took a guitar and started singing, and that was Manson. So Neil Young listened politely. And then he made a recommendation to the head of Warner Reprise Records, Mo Austin. And he said, you know, this guy's pretty good. He's, he's not so much a songwriter as he is a song spewer. But he recommended him to Warner Reprise. And Manson, in fact, I think because he was friends with Dennis, got in, invited to all kinds of places in rock and roll society. Uh, in Los Angeles, including the home of Cass Elliot, of the Mamas and the Papas. You know, often they describe Cass Elliot as being like, uh, she was to Los Angeles in the 60s, what uh, Gertrude Stein was to Paris in the 20s, and that she was the kind of person that brought people together and made things happen, and uh, was just a, a, a terrific uh, intellectual jousting partner, among other things. Manson was at her house. Manson... Uh, hung out with Frank Zappa. I mean, everybody knew who Manson was. Later on, Neil Young says, after Manson became Manson, nobody would talk about him. But he was pretty well known uh, within those circles. Unfortunately, what, what Manson found out was that Dennis Wilson was an artist. He was not even the number one guy in his own band now. Dennis was about to emerge at that time as a, a, a really terrific songwriter, but he was still kind of untapped largely at that point. But Manson thinks, well, maybe he can introduce me to someone else. And that someone else was Terry Melcher, who was the producer at Columbia, the producer of The Birds, Paul Revere and the Raiders. And uh, so he begins palling around with, with Melcher. And so between Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher, I think there were four or five uh, recording sessions, demo sessions. As I said, some of them were done at Brian Wilson's house because the, the Beach Boys were so concerned that Brian Wilson wasn't participating that they had a studio built in his living room thinking, well, then, you know, he has no excuse. And... Um, Brian was kind of withdrawn at that point. He was staying up in his room a lot. And every time Charlie would come over to record in the living room, uh, Dennis, I mean, uh, every time Charlie would come over to record in the living room, Brian's wife, Marilyn, would get really freaked out because Charlie would bring many of the young women who kind of stank. And in fact, she would have the bathroom fumigated after their visits. And finally, she just laid down the lawn and she said, you got to stop. And Brian said, I don't want him here anymore. But they did record with Dennis and recorded with uh, Terry Melcher. And Terry Melcher kept kept him on the line, kind of hoping that he could convince Manson to do something a little bit more commercial and a little less weird. And uh, that was a, a, a really long struggle. At some point uh, in the fall of 1968, the Beach Boys recorded one of Charles Manson's songs. And Manson had written it, recorded it, uh, originally demoed it under its title, 
cease to exist. Well, Dennis Wilson took the song and changed it to cease to resist. And he turned it into the song of sexual submission, whereas Manson had it as a song of domination and power. And Manson was furious. I mean, the Beach Boys put this out as a single and it was on their album uh, 2020. Uh, and Manson wouldn't have his name on it. He got, a, I think, a certain amount of money, but it wasn't wasn't a hell of a lot. And so finally, having been dissed by Dennis Wilson, and then finally, Terry Melcher said, Charlie, it ain't happening. That's when Charles Manson lost it. And he had been to the house that Terry Melcher had lived in with uh, Mark Lindsay of Paul Revere and the Raiders, and that he'd later lived in with his girlfriend, Candace Bergen. Uh, he knew that Melcher and Candace Bergen no longer lived in that house. It was occupied in the summer of 1969 by uh, filmmaker Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, the actor. So Manson knew that he wasn't go didn't send his people to that house to kill Terry Melcher. I think he sent him to that house to scare the shit out of Terry Melcher and, um, and, and sort of send a message like, you know, don't mess with me. I don't know if that's the case or not, but, uh, that was his, his primarily primary goal was to scare Terry Melcher and it worked by that time, by the way, Terry Melcher was living in the beach house. Uh, Malibu, owned by his mother, Doris Day. Yeah, I was told by uh, Mark Lindsay yeah. that uh, he, Terry never recovered from that incident. That kind of uh, ruined his life. I can't imagine recovering from that. In fact, I, I can't imagine anyone who came in contact with uh, Manson recovering from that. Um, Manson had implied that he was going to kidnap Dennis Wilson's son, Scott. He implied that he was going to kill him because he showed up at a subsequent house of Dennis Wilson's and he, he left a bullet with, uh, Dennis wasn't there, he left a bullet with one of Dennis's housemates. And he said, tell him there's another one where that comes from. So I, I think Manson, terrified all of Los Angeles, but I would say those two guys in particular. And it's, it's amazing to me that out of that period that uh, I think Dennis Wilson must have been absolutely nipple deep in a vat of fear. Out of that period, he began to write and he became a really significant songwriter and made some beautiful records that really rivaled his brother Brian's records. They were never hugely popular like Brian's, but they were just beautiful records. And, um, you know, what came out of that? And I, I interviewed him on four occasions and I could never get him to talk about it at all. In fact, you may not want to be interested in this, but that was the genesis of this book. Uh, it was that I, I'd carried around the story in my head for years. What would it have been like to wake up to the Los Angeles Times the day that, you know, Manson's pictures on the cover that they, that putting him together with the, the Tate LaBianca murders, what would it have been like to wake up that day and realize that that's your former roommate 
And that's what he'd done. And that's the question I always wanted to ask Dennis Wilson, but he always like, he's very wonderful guy, very, very kind, but he just, that was off limits. He wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about that. So, um, I carried around this story ever since then. And, uh, a few years ago when I was in cancer treatment, I had to take off from my job. I thought, he'll write that now. So that's what led to the uh, writing the book. Um, let's talk about, um, when, when you were a young man, did you watch, uh, where the action is on television? You know, I was blessed with having uh, an older sister who I think was the perfect demographic for the Beatles and for all those artists in the mid-60s. I was a little bit younger. I was nine or eight when the Beatles came to America. Now, I was all over it. Uh, I loved them. Uh, I lived on a military base where they would let you go in and see a movie, and then if you felt like it, you could stay and watch it a second time. So I, I watched... Uh, Hard Day's Night four times in two days in the movie theater. Never got tired of that movie. And um, so when I'd come home from school, I'd be in elementary school. My sister was in junior high and she had the TV on as soon as she hit the house. And, you know, looking back on that, that era, I can think about what, what an important time that was for kids because, you know, you never really saw your rock and roll stars unless it was, um, you know, now and then on the Ed Sullivan show. And there weren't really a lot of other variety shows that showed rock stars. So to suddenly have, first of all, coming out of Philadelphia originally, American Bandstand. But then in the mid-60s, NBC had Hullabaloo and ABC had Shindig. And then, and then... Every day after school, there was this show where the action is. I think later there was another one called Happening 68, another after-school show. All of a sudden, it was possible uh, to see your rock stars, not just to, to listen to them on the radio. And, of course, you had no control over what was coming on the radio, so you just hope you're lucky enough to hear your favorite song uh, on the drive home from school or whatever. Um, so to have this kind of daily experience was... Uh, it was really terrific. And what's neat about it for me is that uh, I teach the history of rock and roll. And I can use and assign to my students all of these great performances from those catalogs, the catalog of shows. Hullabaloo, Shindig, Where the Action Is, Shivery. Uh, there's another one in Los Angeles a little bit earlier called Town Party. I mean, there's a great library. Of, uh, of great rock and roll performances that uh, you can get. So, yeah, where the action is was uh, kind of a, a, a central part of my uh, after-school routine every day. And my sisters. What did you think about uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders and Mark Lindsay back then? I thought, I, I thought Paul Revere and the Raiders were really cool. Paul Revere and the Raiders were really cool because uh, in addition to playing the music, uh, they wore those cool uniforms. And as I recall, Mark Lindsay had hair down in the middle of his back. Uh, that was kind of a radical thing for the time. There was a guy in the band named Drake. I'd never known anyone named Drake. So there was just about 
every element of that band had something interesting to it. And I always thought that in addition to uh, their musical performances, I thought they're really funny. In fact, I always found, I found Paul Revere and the Raiders a lot more amusing than the monkeys. Um, the monkeys were actors largely uh, playing musicians. A couple of them had some music background, but um, Paul Revere and the Raiders had been around, I think by that time, by they'd been a band for about five years or so. I think they'd recorded Louie Louie before the Kingsman recorded Louie Louie. So um, it was just, it, it, was a, it was a great thing to have a little weenie roast every day after school to go home and be able to watch uh, something like uh, Where the Action Is. Did you ever uh, interview Dick Clark? You know, I never did. No. Okay. I don't know. Uh, he's an interesting guy because he's um, was sorry to say he's gone. But what a, a guy who, you know, introduced so many great artists, uh, so much great music to such a wide, uh, a wide audience. Uh, you know, he wasn't snobby. And, and if you look back on who was on American Bandstand or his other shows, um, it wasn't, you know, I think he's often uh, thought of as producing just this more middle of the road kind of entertainment stuff that, you know, the parents wouldn't be so upset by. But, you know, he had Jefferson Airplane on the show. I think he had the doors on the show. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, he had a wide variety. He introduced America to Strawberry Fields forever the uh, first time. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that, that happens uh, because of someone using their, their cachet as being um, this non-polarizing figure. They, they're more able to introduce people to uh, things that might be a little bit more avant-garde or at least left of center. Do you have any stories about uh, Bobby Boltzley and the group Love? You know, I don't have a lot of stories about Love, although I was reading something recently by uh, not Arthur Lee, but uh, another member of Love who was uh, a black artist in the band. Johnny Eccles. Yeah, Johnny Eccles, that's right. Thank you. And he was um, uh, with Bobby, who had been part of the band in an earlier incarnation. And Bobby was talking about Manson, and Johnny Eccles said something. Oh, I'd like to, he sounds interesting. I'd like to meet him. And Bobby said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. And essentially said, this guy is a racist. Um, so that, uh, I, I, I don't know a lot about Bobby Beausoleil. I remember the interview he did in 1981 with, uh, with uh, Truman Capote, which he denied being uh, a white supremacist. Um, oh, I think it's, I, I know what I'm talking about. It was the, this new series that's on Prime or maybe it's on uh, Netflix, uh, the new series Helter Skelter devoted to, uh, to Manson. That's where I saw the Johnny Eccles interview. It's on Epics. 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 That's right. It must come to me through Amazon. What do you think of that? Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but uh, we interviewed Johnny and he uh, he talked about doing that uh, 
documentary? Yeah. You know, Love is one of those bands that it seems, at least judging by the students I have in my rock and roll history class, that's a band that seems to be, it seems to have a lot of staying power. I think people really respond to them now and they don't, they, they listen to a, a lot of other rock bands at that time and I think they think they're more quaint and Love still has some kind of vitality. I love, uh, you know, how many people have done that song, My Little Red Book, and then, you know, he, he made it sound menacing. Interesting guy. I'd like to read a book about Arthur Lee. You should write one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any stories about the mamas and the papas? Oh, geez. I did so much uh, reading about them um, to prepare for this book. And I really, uh, well, first of all, like every young heterosexual male of my age, Michelle Phillips was our ideal. Uh, that's, that's who everybody wanted her. She was just so, so beautiful. But I think in doing all the research on this book, the character that really came to mean so much to me was Cass Elliot. And I, I learned what a struggle it was for her to even find a place in that group. I mean, she had had kind of a difficult life. Uh, you know, she was, uh, I guess the correct way of putting it would be metabolically challenged and uh, was treated cruelly by so many people throughout her life and career. I mean, she had this fabulous voice and great wit, and yet people couldn't see past the, the outside. And when she was getting together with uh, John and Michelle and Denny, um, he would not, John would not have her in the group. He said, I don't want her in the group because I don't want to be known as the group with the fat chick. And yet she was the, to me, the magic thing that made it happen. John Phillips wrote one really great album full of songs. And I don't know if he ever w was that great a songwriter again. I think it was her voice, Cass's voice and Denny's voice that really were the, the signatures of, of the mamas and the papas. Um, so to me, I, I see her as this, you know, she never got any uh, any respect from John Phillips. And of course, the more you learn about John Phillips, the more loathsome uh, he becomes. Um, it's kind of difficult at times to talk about him when I do my, my rock and roll history class. Um, but they were living, you know, uh, kind of camping out on the beach in the Virgin Islands when they heard all their friends on the radio because they had known uh, Zal Yankovsky of uh, The Love and Spoonful. He'd been in a band with Cass and with Denny Doherty. They heard McGuinn on the radio with the birds. They knew McGuinn from the folk days. And uh, Barry McGuire, also from the New Christie Minstrels. They heard him do that P.F. Sloan song, uh, Eve of Destruction. And they, I think that was the catalyst for them. They said, well, you know, what are we doing here on a beach? And uh, the Virgin Islands, we should be recording. All of our friends are on the radio. If they can do it, we can do it. So they did that. And even at that point, John Phillips resisted Mama Cass, Cass Elliot, I should say, 
being in the group. And she's the one that made the connection. She's the one that used her friendship with Barry McGuire to get the mamas and the papas, as they became, into the door and got them a deal. And then she died young, and her death was misreported by many, became a punchline. I mean, there's so much tragedy about her. It was difficult to do all this reading and research and reading about her and listening to her music again and just not feel, wow, what a loss that she was. What about Jan and Dean? What became of that band? Well, Jan was seriously injured in a car wreck, oddly enough, around the Dead Man's Curve that he had written about in a classic Jan and Dean song. And he never really fully recovered from that, at least never got back all of the abilities he'd had beforehand. And he got into kind of a contentious relationship with Dean Torrance, his partner, his musical partner. And so they kind of retired the brand for a while, and Dean Torrance became a great graphic designer. And they eventually, there was a revival of interest in Jan and Dean after a television movie was made about them. And then they hit the oldie circuit, you know, the last 20 years or so of Jan's life. Jan Berry's family was an interesting family. As I said, his father worked for Howard Hughes. He had a brother that ran studio instrument rentals, recording studio, and another brother who was a roadie for Neil Young. His name was Bruce Berry. And his death from an overdose is what inspired the great Neil Young album, Tonight's the Night. And those are just three of the brothers in that family. I think there were six or seven altogether. So Jan Berry, I don't think ever fully recovered his cognitive abilities from his crash. It's amazing that he did what he did, though, afterward. He produced an album that was called Carnival of Sound. And I'm not sure it got any release at all in the 60s. In the last few years of his life, it was finally released on a Rhino handmade label. And it was, you know, the Jan and Dean entree in the weirdness competition, meaning Sgt. Pepper, Notorious Bird Brothers, all those other albums from that era. I don't know if I know too much else about Jan and Dean to say. Dean would occasionally, of course, Dean sang the lead vocal on the Beach Boys' number one hit, Barbara Ann. And he also would make records during Brian Wilson's lost years in the early 70s. Dean and Brian would make records together. Dean would later on partner with Mike Love of the Beach Boys. So he became kind of an auxiliary Beach Boy. During the nostalgic last two or three decades of the Beach Boys' career, I would say that Dean was kind of orbiting that scene. What was the tipping point for Brian Wilson where he just basically checked out? 
You know, that's a good question. I think he wanted to start checking out uh, as soon as he checked in. He never liked uh, travel with the group. He didn't like the pressure of going on stage and performing uh, and then having to also write, arrange, and produce the records. I think part of him was also kind of embarrassed about doing his falsetto vocals live. So there were a lot of reasons that he sought uh, refuge from the road. And so there were, you know, a couple people that came and went during that time to fill in on stage. But I think the, at the end of 1964, I think he'd really kind of had it. And that's when he, in January of the following year, he hadn't been on the road with the Beach Boys and they came in from a tour and he said, look, this is the way it's gonna be. I'm gonna stay here and I'm gonna make records and you're gonna go out on the road and I foresee a beautiful future, uh, but this is the way it's gotta be. And of course, what he was gonna do is to make backing tracks with the wrecking crew and then whenever the Beach Boys were off the road, they'd come in and add their voices. And that's what made it a Beach Boys record, not the guitar or the bass or anything like that. So uh, he lays out this beautiful future to uh, the other members of the group. And it, you know, one of them breaks out with stomach cramps. One throws an ashtray at somebody else another member starts crying. And the only person that really held it together was the youngest guy in the group, uh, Carl Wilson, who kind of at that moment became the leader of the band, at least on stage, uh, and soon kind of their creative leader during Brian's absences. But when you think about it, that was really a pretty forward-thinking way of, of dealing with the crushing fame of being a rock and roll artist in the 60s when you were expected to do three, maybe even four albums a year. Um, it was just a tremendous workload. And so the only way to keep up was to kind of become this schizophrenic unit, which is sort of what they did. And, and Brian was right. They initially had Glenn Campbell to fill in and he could sing the high parts. And then when he wanted to opt out, they got uh, Bruce Johnston. And uh, it, it worked out beautifully. Now, did Brian, he checked out of performing with the group. I don't think he checked out of the rest of it for a few more years. Obviously, uh, he set to work making Pet Sounds, which is this most lauded of record albums. Some people say the greatest album that came from the rock era. Uh, it is a beautiful piece of work. It is essentially a solo album on which the Beach Boys sing, cut entirely with uh, the Wrecking Crew. I think you may have Carl Wilson on guitar here and there. Uh, and then he started working on what I think is his single masterpiece, Good Vibrations. That took six months. And then he sets to work on the Teenage Hymn to God, as he called it, which became Smile. And Smile was, for about 40-some years, the most famous unreleased album in rock history. And, of course, it was finally released about 2011 or 2012. Um, when that project collapsed, I think that was kind of the beginning of him beginning to withdraw even more, not just from performing on stage, 
but from participation. Now they, they did make a couple of really fine albums in that era that sort of show a shadow participation from him, and that would be Smiley Smile, which was the album that came out in place of Smile and Wild Honey. And then Friends, which was a, an album that sold, I think, 12 copies in the whole country. Uh, and that was Brian's favorite album. So it, the, the group resurgence that began in the early 70s was largely not driven by Brian. He would write a song or two, or they would exhume one of his old songs and put it on one of those albums. But it was largely a group effort by that point. And I think Dennis and Carl Wilson really stepped up. Now, they never had that level of success with their music that Brian had with his songs, but they were great records. Uh, Sunflower, Surf's Up, uh, So Tough, Holland. Those are great albums made by the Beach Boys. And I call that period of their career the lost years because uh, it's like nobody was listening. And then all of a sudden, bam, 1974, they're rediscovered for their old records with this greatest hits anthology called Endless Summer. And that was kind of the end of them uh, as a forward-thinking group. I mean, they could never escape their past at that point. And I think in the various members had to come to terms with that somehow. Can you speak about... Uh... Van Dyke Parks mm. and his relationship to Brian. Van Dyke Parks is a really interesting story. Um, he came from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and he had been a child actor. In fact, he was in the last film that Grace Kelly ever made. It was called The Swan. But he ends up being one of these um, characters on the music scene in, in Los Angeles in the uh, the mid 60s. Uh, he played on uh, the third album by the Birds called Fifth Dimension. And he had, he knew uh, David Crosby and he knew uh, Terry Melcher. And I believe it was Terry Melcher that introduced Van Dyke to uh, Brian Wilson about 1966, early 1966, if memory serves. And at that point, um, Brian was struggling with good vibrations. He had the track or most of the track. He had the idea for the song. The idea for the song came from his mother who said uh, when Brian was a kid, he said to his mother, how come a dog barks at somebody but uh, doesn't bark at someone else? And his mother said, well, maybe the person he doesn't bark at gives good vibrations and the other person gives out bad vibrations. So that was the genesis of the song. So he had that idea, but it was the verses he couldn't get. And so he went to his collaborator on Pet Sounds, Tony Asher, and he didn't come up with anything for it. And he went to Van Dyke Parks after meeting him at this party. And he said, in essence, I'm not gonna buy somebody else's problem, no. And how many people, young people in the music business would have turned down the idea of collaboration? But Van Dyke Parks is an unusual guy. So finally, Brian took the lyrics from Mike Love uh, he didn't particularly like him. He thought that line, she's giving me the excitations, was a way of saying she's giving me an erection. But nonetheless, those are the lyrics that they used. But he kept the idea of Van Dyke Parks. 
And so when he decides he wants to do this next project, and I'm not even sure how he articulated what the project would be, uh, a celebration of the small moments of life, uh, a celebration of nature, a celebration of American history, just whatever the hell this project was going to be, he turned to Van Dyke Parks. And so Van Dyke Parks came up with these really uh, unusual lyrics um, and it, it kind of freaked out the other Beach Boys because they were being asked to sing things that they didn't understand. Uh, the famous exchange was in the studio when Michael was handed the lyrics to read, I believe, for Cabin Essence, uh, which was a song about the uh, westward expansion of uh, the railroad. You know, your usual subject matter for a rock and roll song. And um, there was a line in the song that went, over and over the crow cries uncover the cornfield. And Mike Love said to Van Dyke Parks, just what in the hell is this supposed to mean? And Van Dyke Parks said, I don't know. Uh, If you don't like them, don't sing them. And um, Van Dyke Parks said at one point, you know, this was a, a, I was in a completely different area. I mean, I didn't understand the Beach Boys language, Udidiwada Hang Ten. He didn't know that, although Van Dyke Parks was a surfer. Uh, and so Van Dyke Parks and, and Brian Wilson got into some very rarefied air with those songs because finally this um, very sophisticated music that had been paired with these songs about, I mean, the lyrics were about cars and girls and surfing. And because that was the subject matter, people missed the sophistication of the music. Now, in defense of the car songs, uh, there is a lot of really technical lingo in there. It's amazing the, the amount of, you know, shout outs to various automobile products you can get in those uh, Beach Boy songs like uh, Shut Down, One Minute, 50 Seconds. It's, a, it's an asphalt drama. I mean, it's, it's like a movie in one minute and 50 seconds. But suddenly, put that aside, suddenly now, um, thanks to Tony Asher with Pet Sounds and now Van Dyke Parks with The Smile Project, Brian's music is getting the attention it deserves because it's the subject matter is, is different. And uh, it, it was just, I think, probably too much for the Beach Boys at that time to consider what they would be singing about. I mean, all these songs about air, water, uh, fire, like how does that relate to where they were last year on their albums? And then uh, also, I think there was so much pressure. Brian was profiled uh, in magazine articles. He was featured on a CBS television special for his new intellectual sound. And I think it, the, the expectations of that album were so great that, and then Sgt. Pepper came out and everyone was calling that the greatest record of all time. I think time has shown it, it wasn't. But he realized that no matter what I do, it's gonna be anticlimactic. So he pulled the plug on that project. And uh, Van Dyke Parks went off and began making his own albums. And these were always really interesting, 
deeply insidiocratic records that came out every presidential election year uh, that, you know, never drew a huge audience, but were always among the most interesting uh, records that came out of a, uh, a major record company. Now, they collaborated again later in life, uh, and one wonders what would have happened if Van Dyke Parks had stayed on as, as Brian Wilson's lyricist. Where would that have gone? Um, I believe it was Terry Melcher who said the, the whole fact that, song, that Brian's beautiful music was paired with songs about drag racing or surfer girls or something like that obscured the fact of, of what a, a brilliant composer he was. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate he, he never really found or at least have a long relationship with a lyricist who was his equal in words as he was with music. Did Brian have a speech impediment? Um, I don't believe he had a speech impediment. It's kind of just a joke uh, with, uh, with my friends that we like to pretend we're imitating him and the voice we use is that of Bill Murray as Carl the groundskeeper in Caddyshack. And that they, they sound they sound like they're kind of like that they're sounding from, speaking from the side of their mouth. And uh, there's a, a one of the documentaries about the Beach Boys. There's just this great line of, uh, of Brian Wilson, just pure innocence, saying, uh, when we started off, we were boys, and uh, now we're men. <laughs> well, yeah, you are. Uh, I don't, you know, he's the only one I'd never interviewed. And uh, I understand he's a very difficult interview. I have a friend that's done several uh, films with him and knows him pretty well. And just say he's the, you know, most charming person in the world. But, you know, when he wants to be quiet and shut down, he will. And uh, so I don't know how I felt about never, ever having uh, the chance to interview him. Maybe it was a relief. It's like with Bob Dylan. I admire Bob Dylan. I don't want to interview him. He hates journalists. He hates academics, you know, and, and, and what's in it for him. So, yeah, I I'd rather just respect his work. And, you know, I don't feel the need to uh, uh, to ask him, like, what were you doing when you made that record? You know, that kind of stuff. I feel that way with uh, Roger McGuinn. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think he be a difficult uh, subject yeah. to get for an interview. He's uh, he's a, a friend of this friend of mine has written several books. Uh, one was about Graham Parsons. Uh, he's doing a book now about uh, the Beatles uh, and civil rights um, because the Beatles refused on their 64 tour when they didn't, you know, they weren't the Beatle Beatles. They said we will refuse to perform in this venue because it's uh, segregated so anyway he's done some interesting books so he's gotten to know roger mcguinn really well and he just says uh uh he's probably the most easygoing non-pretentious uh rock star he's ever talked to and you know he lives in uh central florida now and he just does his gigs he and his wife go around in a van and he's very low maintenance very I, I hope he appreciates what a great role he has in American music, but he doesn't seem to carry it around like a shield. Right. Uh, I saw him with Chris Hillman 
last year doing the sweetheart of the rodeo album live it was just lovely but part of me wished you know love to see him with david crosby again did he do that with uh, marty stewart yeah god that was a great great tour did you see it i've seen parts of it on youtube i know marty uh, marty has clarence white's guitar yeah, he played it that night. He talked about it a little bit. And Marty uh, just got inducted to the Country Music Hall of Fame this week. He deserves he, uh, it. He was a, That was my second time, I think, with him. Uh, just the greatest, greatest show. I, I, that was My son took me for my birthday. It was so, so good. If they bring that around again. When I was uh, in high school, I used to sneak into the Troubadour and the Palomino Club and uh see the uh, flying burrito brothers oh wow and uh, that was when skip Patton was in the band oh and i used to sneak backstage and uh hang out and eventually skip Patton got to know me and started calling me his shadow because I, I was always at his shows I wish I still had this solo album he made about 1972 or 1973. I think it was just called Skip Batten, but he did this song. Captain Video? Captain Video? I love that song. It's hard to find anymore, and of course he's passed. Uh, Is is the the album, uh, there's a song on there, I believe is the first cut on the album, Captain Video. Yeah. It's about Roger McGuinn. Yeah, he was a... That era of the birds is, uh, in some ways, I find that the albums from that era were more interesting than the albums of the earlier era. It's not that the earlier era may have the hit songs and their great recordings, but there was a lot of stuff on there that, particularly in the second album, I never cared for. Whereas in the Skip Bat and Clarence White, uh, Gene Parsons era, they made Farther Along, which I thought was a beautiful record. Bugler. Bugler was a great song. Which was? Bugler. It's one of the all-time greats. Uh, yeah, I did a absolutely. CD compilation a few years ago called uh, ARF. It was great songs about dogs. And that's like the number one song ever about a dog. I also liked Old Blue. Uh, oh, yeah. Great song. Compilation as well. Now, Clarence White, uh, I just, I must have been doing some deep diving on the internet last week and I found all kinds of good Clarence White stuff. I, uh, I almost bought this, uh, there's a retrospective of his uh, early bluegrass uh, material. But, uh, you know, I had the solo albums by Gene Parsons and Skip Batten. Uh, I mean, there's some good stuff there and you just can't find it anymore. I didn't know that Gene Parsons had been fired by McGuinn. Uh, I figured he just went off on his own, but... Uh, the latter day birds, I thought, were were really uh, underappreciated. McGuinn didn't like them, and uh, and uh, none of the other birds liked them either. Really? Uh, yeah, they. Uh, uh, Crosby said, uh, or and, and Chris said they were very. McGuinn was very unhappy with that group. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he didn't like he didn't like the songs they wrote, and he didn't like the way they sounded. Hmm. But I thought they were fantastic, especially live. Unbelievably great. I know they did the, uh, it came out about five or six years ago now, the live at the Fillmore. That's a great live album. And I love uh, the live stuff on Untitled. 
Untitled, that may be my single favorite Birds album. Fantastic, uh, Just Season, Chestnut Mare, fantastic album. Yeah, and uh, believe it or not, I really like the drums and bass solo on... uh, Oh yeah, Eight Miles uh, High. God, that's great. No, you know, I kind of wanted to do a sequel to this book about the birds. Um, And uh, my, my agent... This is gonna. This kills me to say it, but my agent says, "Okay, well, yeah, go ahead and write a proposal, but who's gonna read that except a bunch of old white guys like you?" Uh, I, I, you know, I, I write books that I want to read. <laughs> no one else does. Can you speak a little about uh, Grant Parsons and how he changed the birds? Yeah, you know. Graham Parsons uh, was born Ingram Cecil Connor, and he was from sort of a, a, a wealthy and skeletons in the closet Southern family. Uh, his father committed suicide. Uh, his mother was part of a family that had, you know, produced so much orange juice for the world. He was living in Winter Haven, Florida. Uh, you know, had been adopted by his uh, his mother's second husband, so he became uh, Parsons. Went to a prep school and then went off off to Harvard. Now he'd always been in music. Uh, he had a couple of groups in Florida when he was a kid, and uh, some of those guys went on to some acclaim. One of them became Jim Stafford, who had a bunch of hits in the seventies, uh, My Girl Bill, Spiders and Snakes. Uh, another one of his uh, associates from that era was uh, Lobo, who did Me and You and a Dog Named Boo. So anyway, there's kind of a nice musical area of percolation there in Central Florida. Uh, so he went off to Harvard and uh, didn't stay very long, decided he wanted to go to, to California. And he had been a rock and roll guy who kind of as a late teenager began to develop an appreciation for this music that had been around him his whole life, uh, country and Western music. So when he arrived in uh, Los Angeles, what he was offering was this blend of country and rock that was kind of a new thing. Not many people were doing that. I, I sometimes say the first country rock album might have been from 1965 or 66, I forget the release date, but it was an album by Rick Nelson. And he was kind of paving the way for that direction. But um, Graham Parsons began using a name of a a band that a friend of his had had back east called the International Submarine Band. And it began this blending of country and rock. And he made an album with, uh, with that group and it was produced by this guy named Lee Hazelwood, who was producing records with, with Nancy Sinatra. So he gets into the contract with this, and almost immediately, in fact, I think the album had not yet been released, almost immediately, uh, he gets uh, drawn into The Birds. After David Crosby had been fired, uh, The Birds were essentially a trio of uh, Roger McGuinn, he changed his name from Jim. Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman. Uh, the drummer was Michael Clark. He was soon replaced by Kevin Kelly. 
for a few weeks in there, I think Gene Clark rejoined, but they were essentially a trio. So McGuinn has the idea of bringing in a piano player. And even though that's not his main instrument, uh, Graham Parsons was brought into audition for that. And McGuinn had an idea of a, doing an album that was going to trace the whole history of American music. So he thought this guy, Parsons, might have something going for him. So Graham Parsons joins the birds and almost immediately hijacks the group. And he takes them the direction he had been going with the International Submarine Band. Now, meanwhile, he's in a lawsuit because he's walked out on that band and that contract and joined the birds. They began recording uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo as the birds next album was called. And they brought in all kinds of great players. They brought in Clarence White. Uh, they brought in, uh, you know, Brian Berlin, I think the fiddle player. Uh, and it was a, a, a real ensemble effort. And it had old country songs. It had somewhat contemporary country songs by Merle Haggard. It had a couple of new songs from Bob Dylan that Bob Dylan hadn't recorded. And it had the sound of the steel guitar. It had the sound that rock fans had never really heard before. And so they produced this album and it was not a huge success when it came out. In fact, I think it's probably better to say it was a failure. And by the time it's out, um, Parsons is essentially gone again. Uh, in this case, one of the reasons he left was that the birds were to tour South Africa and they were in Great Britain prior to that tour. And Graham Parsons had become friends with uh, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. And Keith sort of said, um, ain't cool, mate. Don't go to South Africa uh, because of apartheid. So he didn't. And the birds were reduced to being a trio again. In this case, it was McGuinn, Hillman, and Kevin Kelly, the new drummer. And uh, Chris Hillman said he felt ridiculous, you know. So McGuinn had to start from scratch after that. But with Hillman, with Parsons, he'd made this classic album, an album that today is recognized for the enormous role it played in changing the direction of, of rock music. And yet at the time it was, uh, was kind of a bomb. Uh, at first they had to wipe off some of the vocals that Parsons had recorded because of his dispute, but a couple of them ended up on, on the eventual album. And then Graham Parsons went on with uh, Chris Hillman and then later on with another member of the Birds, a, a refugee named Michael Clark, the drummer. And uh, they formed the Flying Burrito Brothers. And uh, for the second album, the Flying Burrito Brothers got another great guitarist, uh, Bernie Ledden, who came from Gainesville, Florida, where he'd gone to the same high school with Stephen Stills, Don Felder, and Tom Petty. And uh, then he went on and formed the Eagles. So. If you're looking at a genealogy of rock and roll, the birds are really kind of like, uh, that's the, the that's the Adam and Eve of, uh, of so many rock bands that followed because there, there's so many branches of, of, of that tree that came from from that group. Um, just the, the Burrito Brothers, the Eagles, you name it. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Poco. Um, well, perhaps not Poco. Anyway, how about the uh, uh, Graham Parsons uh, controversial demise? The demise? 
You know, uh, everything connects, doesn't it? Uh, one of Charles Manson's cellmates was a guy named Phil Kaufman, who uh, had given Manson some connections. Say, when you get out of jail, uh, go see these guys. Maybe he can set you up the recording deal. Well, that didn't happen. But five years later, Phil Kaufman is out of uh, prison and he's the road manager for uh, Graham Parsons, who's now a solo artist in his post This is Graham Parsons dies and his body is in a coffin about to be shipped back to New Orleans where his stepfather was going to have him buried. This Phil Kaufman who stole the body and took it out to the desert, to Joshua Tree, and burned it. And uh, that's the thing that a lot of people seem to remember about Graham Parsons. Oh, yeah, he's the guy whose body was stolen. They burned it in the desert instead of the fact that he was a, uh, you know, a musical visionary and uh, really had more effect on, on the changing direction of popular music than so many others. In fact, he probably belongs in rock and roll heaven if for no other reason than he introduced Emmylou Harris to the world. Uh, he found her in a club, got her into his band, began duetting with her, and his last album was not entirely finished at the time of his death, but she's all over it, uh, the album Grievous Angel. So he had done the International Submarine Band, then he had done Sweetheart of the Rodeo with the Birds, he did two albums with the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then he did two solo albums. And that is his commercially released, at least, his commercially released uh, recorded output. What, um, what about um, Phil Spector? Can you give us a little overview on Phil Spector? Phil Spector is a really... Uh, interesting story. Um, you know, he was born in the Bronx, and uh, I'd always read that he was born on Christmas Day. Well, I learned he wasn't born on Christmas Day. Uh, his mother lied about his birthday because she thought it made a better story for him to have been born on Christmas Day. Uh, so she just said, well, it's born on Christmas. And her nickname for him as a child was Second Jesus. So his mother was a pretty domineering influence on his life. Unfortunately, when he was 10, his father uh, committed suicide. And so uh, he moved out to California with his mother and sister and went to Fairfax High School and uh, always wanted to be a musician. And so his mother was this kind of demanding character. Uh, and he said, you know, Mom, I want guitar lessons. And so she looked up who the great guitarists were and she found Barney Kessel who's a, a great studio guitarist, but a guy who made a lot of really fabulous guitar instrumental albums on his own. And she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him until, you know, Barney Kessel doesn't give guitar lessons to kids. But she nagged him and nagged him until I thought, good Christ, if he'll just shut her up, I'll give this kid guitar lessons. So he did, and after some months, I forget how long it was, but Phil was about 16 or so then, he asked Barney Kessel, am I going to make it as a musician? And Barney Kessel said, no, you're just not. You, you have no sense of how to be a musician. But there are lots of things you can do around music. 
And that led uh, Phil Spector to try to develop as a songwriter. And the first hit single he had went to number one. It was him and a couple of classmates from high school singing a song called To Know Him Is To Love Him. And they billed themselves as the teddy bears. The lead vocal was by um, the, the girl of the group, Annette Kleinbard, who uh, later wrote the theme song for Rocky. Uh, anyway, uh, so they made this record and it became a huge hit. And that was Phil's entree to the record business. And he worked his way through various apprenticeships with older gentlemen who worked in the record business at Atlantic Records, a guy named Lester Sill. Uh, that Lester Sill sort of bankrolled uh, a record label for Phil Spector when he was 21, 22 years old. And Spector began, after an apprenticeship in New York, returned to California and began making some of his great records in Gold Star Recording Studio and using this group of musicians that history has since named the Wrecking Crew, uh, certain drummers, certain bass players. And when he, his production technique was to take everything and uh, enlarge it. Rather than just one drummer, he'd have two drummers. Rather than one pianist, he'd have three pianists. He'd have an acoustic bass and an electric bass. He'd have, instead of just two guitars, he'd have six guitars. I mean, he was multiplying everything and having all the musicians playing basically together in one room to create this chaos that was called the wall of sound. And to him, the musicians were all interchangeable and so were the singers. And so uh, one group he was recording was called The Crystals and he made a couple of hit records with The Crystals. The Crystals are out on the road and they hear on the radio, here's the new song by The Crystals. And they listen as the disc jockey puts the needle down on a record they've never heard before. Phil Spector had gone ahead and made the next Crystals record without the Crystals. He just used backing singers, very talented backing singers, but backing singers in, in Los Angeles. So he, were, he sort of regarded everyone as bricks in his wall of sound. And uh, he was a guy that seemed to have a, a short attention span in a way. He was in love with the Crystals. And then he heard the Ronettes and, you know, uh, what do I know from Crystals? He went, went for the Ronettes. And then after the Ronettes, well, I'm going to try these two guys I heard in a nightclub, the Righteous Brothers, and he made you've lost that love and feeling. Um, and then after that, well, you know, I, I heard this woman's voice. I'm going to make a record with this Tina Turner woman. And so he would keep going through people's careers, doing all these great songs, and then kind of leaving them. And the, the, one of the last great records he made in that stretch in the mid-60s was that record credited to the Ike and Tina Turner review, but it was really Tina Turner and the Wrecking Group. And it was called River Deep Mountain High. And it was a fantastic flop in the United States. Whereas in Great Britain, it went to number one. And then as it ha happens to all number one records, it began to fall off the charts. and. A few months later, it was, you know, in the 20s and the 30s, and all of a sudden, those wacky English audiences decided, you know what, we still like that record. And it went all the way to the number one again, like six or eight months later. Fantastic and weird chart performance. But it was nothing in the United States. They even got 
a, they put a sticker on the cover of the album that had River Deep Mountain High. And it was a, a quote from George Harrison, you know him, of the Beatles. And it said something like, uh, this is the best record I've ever heard. It cannot be improved upon. Despite the sticker, nobody in America bought the record and Phil Spector retired uh, age 26. And he came out of retirement. He made a few more records. He ended up working with the Beatles. He ended up working with the Ramones, Leonard Cohen, Dion. But his classic records were from that very fertile period in the early 60s in Los Angeles when he was using that studio and those musicians. And he made records that people today don't think of as Crystal's records or Ronette's records or even Righteous Brothers records as much as they think of them as Phil Spector records. Because he kind of made the producer the auteur. And uh, his most fervent disciple was, was Brian Wilson, who tried very hard and sometimes succeeded, sometimes bested uh, Phil Spector's record production. But he always thought that Be My Baby was Phil Spector's masterpiece and even offered uh, Phil Spector a song he'd written called Don't Worry Baby as the follow-up. And Phil Spector kind of cruelly dismissed it and dismissed Brian too. It's not exactly a... There's a, there's a great quote that Tony Asher, the collaborator on Pet Sounds, used in describing Brian Wilson. But to me, it describes so many of these people, Phil Spector, um, Sinatra, whomever. And the quote is, he was a genius musician, but an amateur human being. And that seems to be a pretty good description of a lot of these people. Do you have any stories about uh, Phil, Phil Spector on the airplane trip back to the States? when he was on the plane with the Beatles. No, but it's, it's interesting that when the Beatles were coming to America in February 1964, that Spectre got on the plane. Uh, I think George was dating um, Nedra Talley of the Ronettes at the time, where he had met her or he was soon to date her, but whatever. Spectre was getting his hooks into the Beatles fairly early on. He wouldn't end up uh, working with them, even though it was kind of after the fact working uh, on Let It Be for uh, six more years. But he did oversee the production of the first great solo albums by John Lennon and George Harrison. And um, it's kind of interesting that when George Harrison brought out an anniversary edition of All Things Must Pass, uh, which Spectre had produced with him in 1970, he brought this out in the, sometime in the 1990s and he felt the need to apologize for Spectre's recording techniques, because they were kind of bombastic. They, they, they were in fashion for a while, and uh, I think time passed Spectre by. You know, um, he recorded, he made an album with the Ramones, and you kind of wonder, what was the record company thinking? I mean, the Ramones are the most wonderful and glorious stripped down music and they bring in the master of bombast to produce that record. It just, it's like, why, why was he doing Let It Be in the first place? Let It Be, in the words of John Lennon, was supposed to be the Beatles with their pants down. And then you bring in this guy that does all these over the top productions. So 
Phil Spector, I, I think, is somebody who worked best when he was in total control of an artist, when the artist was new or starting out or whatever. It's hard to bring, it was hard to bring him in to work with somebody like the Beatles or the Ramones, where they have an existing style and a technique. Um, I mean, it always makes for an interesting record, like the Ramones album, End of the Century, produced by Phil Spector, is an interesting record. It's probably not one of their best, but it's interesting. Can you uh, speak a little bit about Kim Fowley? You know, I don't know that I, uh, I know enough about him. I was talking about him to somebody last week. That's why I had that long sigh. Because uh, there's a guy, you know, Joel Selvin, the music writer. He's got a book coming out about this era, too, in Los Angeles. Yes. And so he had been in touch. And I mentioned that I had the, somewhere I had Kim Fowley's complete series called Kim Fowley Visits America. Um, and uh, he, uh, he wanted me to find it. I never did. But every time I mention Kim Fowley's name, people are just, I guess because of the runaways and the, the element of exploitation or if not pedophilia associated with that, I think people get all, all upset about it. I was always amused that he was a songwriting partner with Skip Batten. I thought they wrote a bunch of great songs together. I bet uh, that's a long way of saying I don't really know that much about him. He was just one of those guys whose hand seems to be in a lot of people's music. He's actually responsible for uh, hooking up Mark Lindsay with, uh, uh, I believe, Terry Melcher. I did not know that. Yeah. See, that's what I mean about him having his hand in everywhere. I mean, he, he was, wasn't he like in active in Los Angeles music is like the late fifties. Yes. Back a long way. Yes. And, and every artist that we've interviewed has known Kim Fowley. Everyone knew Kim Fowley and they all have Kim Fowley stories. How Kim introduced him to this person or did this uh, Kim and uh, Kim and Mark were roommates. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, he, he shows up every now and then in these documentaries, too. Or he did. He's, he died, what, about two years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think I know enough about him. I think I may have, I wonder if I even mentioned him in the book. I think he shows up. Well, in this uh, documentary, you're going you're gonna to hear a lot about him. Oh, good. Because every, everybody has a great story about him. Yeah, I was impressed that I, when I found out his dad was Douglas V. Fowley, because he was a, I kind of know, I, for some reason I remember the names of various character actors. Uh, what does it say? He was in, uh, he shows up in this, in this book of mine in three tangential references. Uh, one, I think, is from the, the Ciro's era, although I'm not finding it right now. Oh, I think I'm on the wrong page. That's the problem. Kim Fowley, 196. No, this is it. Ah, a band didn't have to be good as long as the dancers were there, said Kim Fowley. Speaking of the dancers that used to surround uh, the birds. Yeah, he, uh, he was part of a dance troupe uh, headed by a, a Greek guy named uh, Vito or... 
Yeah, you know something. What is that? Yeah, but that's that's the group that Kim was part of, and uh, they. No, they you know Pakulas. Yeah, and they helped make the birds famous. They were the Sherwood Forest people. And then uh, a couple pages over, I this I'm reminding myself because I'm getting old and feeble. He went to University of High School with Jan and Dean and. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, Kim was was very influential in the early surf scene as well. And with Gary Paxton, he did Alley Oop as yeah. the Hollywood art guy. Exactly, it's, it's incredible career the guy has. Yeah, I just, I mean, that's what I mean. His hands were everywhere, but I don't really know enough about him to uh, to comment. There's one other reference, I mean. Like I said, a lot of this was done when I was on chemo, so. <laughs> I see. I met I met him in 1980 at the Troubadour, and I said, "Aren't you Kim Fowley?" He says, "No, Kim's a girl's name." <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Oh, now I can't. Oh, here it is. Songwriter impresario Kim Fowley recalled willowy hippie girls suddenly showing up. Uh, what is this? Oh, I guess I'm talking about David Crosby's house. Yeah, I think everybody, you're right, everybody knew him. Yeah, everyone did. I mean, he's the most, he's the common denominator between all of these different groups. Everybody you know, knew Kim. Maybe he's like the character in the Woody Allen movie. He's like Zelig. Zelig, yes, exactly yeah. like Zelig. Yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, stories about the monkeys? Nah, I don't think I have anything that I would say was... Okay. You know, I know the usual stuff. Stephen Stills was yeah. turned down because of his teeth. You yeah, know. we got we got all that. Yeah. Um, they're not really the focus of this documentary. Anyway, they came on a little bit later, and in my opinion, they were kind of what ruined the the entire rock and roll scene.